0: Welcome, welcome everyone to episode 18 on the Prismatic Academy podcast. I'm Chrissy Marie, and today I'm super excited to share my incredible conversation that I had with MFT practitioner and my personal longtime friend, Jordan Subrant. Jordan and I go way back, and in reflection, that note makes me feel so proud because I think that those kinds of friendships are very special. You know, the ones where... Days, months, even years can pass by, and yet you always feel accepted and appreciated for who you are. You know where you stand with this person and why you keep them in your life. In fact, a good portion of this podcast is all about that the cultivation and care of meaningful relationships. A few more gems you'll find in this episode is that we also touch on the nature of depression, the importance and value of vulnerability how to express vulnerability, and why conflict and incompatibilities are actually useful tools that can help create greater opportunities within relationships. Jordan is a spark of profound insight, grounded in both knowledge and wisdom. I highly respect the compassion he brings for himself and to those around him. Honestly, I could chat with him for days out of appreciation for how he's come to learn about and understand the world and how we as humans play and interact with it. Individually and in relationship to one another. Okay, I won't give any more away because I can't wait for you to virtually meet Jordan. So with that, here's episode 18, The Nature of Nurturing Relationships with Jordan Well, I'm super excited to talk with you. Um, Yeah,
1: it's going to be fun.
0: Yeah, I kind of wrote down a few things that I've been thinking about relating to you, but I can always use a warm-up. What about you?
1: Yeah, um, I'm always down for a warm-up, too.
0: Cool. All right. Well, are you reading anything interesting?
1: Am I reading it? I'm always reading something interesting.
0: Ooh, tell me.
1: Um, I mean, how many books can you handle?
0: Oh, gosh. All of them. Give them.
1: So I never read one book at a time because mm-hmm. I need time to digest.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So currently, let's see, on my desk next to me, I have seven books that I'm in the middle of. Nice. So one is called Meeting the Shadow by Zweig and Abrams, and it is all about how shadow work is um how we use shadow work to not just make ourselves better but to appreciate the dark parts of us Mm -hmm. and allowing the dark parts to be sort of paradoxically as valuable as the good parts and so that book is really interesting it's a collection of works by um a lot of very famous thinkers so it's more of like a curated read Mm -hmm. and They're short. You can read, you know, a chapter or an article at a time and go really deep and spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, But you don't have to read the whole book, cover to cover, to really get something from it. Cool. So, reading that, Russell Brand has a new book on recovery, um, basically the the twelve steps, but interpreted more through his life and his story. Mm -hmm. A really modern take on the twelve steps, which if you know anything about them they are over a 100 years old at this point mm-hmm. and the language is really antiquated and hard to connect to and um pretty confined.
0: religious too i think right and very
1: religious yeah
0: <laughs> that's it's so also- funny i actually wrote down that i wanted to talk to you a little bit about that today so i love yeah. that you it
1: <laughs> that's perfect and his um his latest stand-up on netflix has some of the elements of what's in the book Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also got some good podcasts with, like, Tony Robbins and uh, mm-hmm. a few others where he talks about kind of his, his approach and his method. Um, so that's kind of a nerd read.
0: Does he, like, still bring his kind of, like, eccentric, eclectic flavor to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, the the step one, his interpretation is, are you a bit fucked? <laughs> that's awesome. Step two, could you not be fucked?
0: Oh, wow. He does That's, not let down,
1: does he? Yeah. Are you on your own going to unfuck yourself? <laughs> so it's, you know, it's cheeky and it's very much in his style. And uh-huh. it's in a way that I think is really, really relatable. And he does a good job of looking at the addiction cycle outside of just the context of substances. So he talks about love addiction. He talks about food addiction. He talks about any any form of addiction. And he kind of... Um, you look at it from the perspective of everybody's probably addicted to something and you have to figure out where your vices are and explore how you're going to get help and support to address them.
2: Mm.
1: so it's more of like a unifying theory of addiction than being really myopic or, or singularly focused.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that there's that. Shall I keep going?
0: <laughs> yeah, let's do one more. Give me one more.
1: Okay. One more. Um, that is interesting i I haven't cracked this one but it's the newest one that i just got it's called the the heroine's journey okay and i heard about it from one of my clients who was essentially just talking about the fact that when you look at the hero's journey it's a Mm -hmm. very masculine process Mm -hmm. and many of the historic myths although not all of them um, follow more of a masculine hero and mm-hmm. so uh, this particular work, the author is Murdoch, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, this work is a woman's perspective and a woman's um, exploration of the hero's journey, but through the, the vices and the challenges that women go through. So it's tailored towards women. I think it's you know rather old at this point. I think it's 20 or 30 years old in terms of when it was written.
0: Right. Hey. What what do you think makes it more tailored towards women? Is it more like emotional or like less questing? Like we're not slaying um, a dragon here, or it's a different kind of dragon, or a different kind of approach?
1: So, like, um, I'll just read some of the chapter titles. Mm-hmm. So, separation from the feminine is step one. Step five: strong women can say no. Um, healing the mother-daughter split. Hmm. Finding the inner man within the heart, urging, urgent yearning to reconnect with the feminine, initiation and descent to the goddess. So it's interesting. Um, I do a lot of work with women, and I'm obviously not a woman. So uh, <laughs> what
0: makes you pick it up
1: when it comes to being able to help people? My one of my sort of fundamental premises is that if you can't see the world from their perspective then you can't help them because you know I can tell you how to be a better version of me (laughs) but that's not going to help you Um, you might be able to get bits and pieces from what I have to say but ultimately my goal or my role in helping people is to step into their world and figure out how to give truths or support them in discovering truth in a way that already fits within their context and their understanding of the world Mm
0: -hmm.
1: versus trying to change their understanding of the world for them to agree with me.
0: I love that. You're helping people build their own box maybe?
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm
0: -hmm. Instead of like fit into a box? Yep. Very cool. Spot on. You and I are both voracious readers and I've come across this problem where I'm just like consuming, consuming, consuming all of this information, but always moving on to the next. So I was curious if you had like a system, like when you read a book, do you ever revisit it or go back through it or like take notes on it that you go back to reflect on? What does that process look like for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I used to um, take notes on the side Mm -hmm. of books. 'Cause I didn't wanna like write in the margins and ruin the book. <laughs> but but now I just write in the books.
0: Um, <laughs> I totally do that. <laughs> like all books I'm very yeah. loved and written. On.
1: Yep. And there's certain books that I come back and revisit because they're foundational. Like mm-hmm. um The Untethered Soul is a really foundational mm-hmm. book for me yeah. that is torn up and you know, excruciatingly mm-hmm. underlined and it's everywhere but then there's also books that are are too dense to write in the margins and really capture what you need to capture Mm -hmm. um and so for those I just get a legal pad and take notes as I read through it treat it kind of like a class
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of how I've been wanting like the the ideal system I envision for myself is doing somewhere like that or maybe using something like Evernote and like tags so whenever I want to go back and find information or reflect on something, I could find it a little bit more easier.
1: Yeah, and, you know, there's so much information that I think the, the key thing that works best for me is I don't so much hold on to the the minute details or the, mm-hmm. the you know, sound bites,
2: mm-hmm. but I
1: try to really grasp the concepts and then use the concepts to organize how i see the world or how i look at things
0: Mm, totally do you have anything that kind of stands out that you know have has just like greatly influenced your world purview
1: (laughs) yeah i think the probably the biggest thing came out of reading tony robbins Mm -hmm. awaken the giant within
2: cool
1: that's one of those i think that's that's like 450 pages (laughs) print like Mm -hmm. it's It's a beast of a book, Um, but the idea of really identifying what your values are and then structuring your life in a way that's consistent with your values is probably the single greatest or most significant um, takeaway that I've I've come across.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm totally exploring that again in my life, uh, like reprioritizing and essentialism building a life around what really matters. Mm -hmm. And so you do that a lot in your work. Do you want to explain a little bit about what you do and what your goals are with your work?
1: Sure. So So I am a marriage and family therapist by trade. Um, But somewhere in the first, we'll say three to five years of doing that, um, I kind of came up against my own challenges and really realized that most of the popular literature in the world of psychology is geared towards Band-Aids,
2: mm-hmm. teaching people
1: how to cope with, with their fears or teaching them how to manage symptoms, but not really helping people like, get better, mm-hmm. not really teaching or training people how to develop themselves And so I went looking for more training um, despite having a master's degree. And I I will probably talk a lot about Tony Robbins because (laughs) one of the primary places where I found somebody who was actually interested in helping people function at an optimal level Mm -hmm. rather than just learning how to survive with a psychological limp. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: And so I went through one of his coaching programs and my work at this point really is supporting people and learning how to cope with their challenges because we need that help but even more so than that developing a sense of self or a, an identity around their own values so that they can actually feel good because feeling good is is less complicated than we're led to believe even though there's work and a journey to get there so Right now, I see clients in private practice and primarily help them address depression, anxiety, codependency issues through the lens of developing a clear sense of who they are and how they want to be in the world and letting that support them through these challenges that we all go through. Because we all experience depression, we all experience Mm. anxiety, we all experience all kinds of shifts and changes in our mood. The difference is that people who have a clear sense of who they are and how they wanna approach these challenges feel a stronger sense or a, a, a clear sense of certainty and the ability to adapt to those challenges without feeling threatened. And when you, when you learn how to do that, you can cope with whatever challenges come at you in a way that is far more rewarding than kind of struggling and suffering and having no hope or no sense of vision about how your life will, how you'll be okay, essentially, Mm -hmm. as you go through these challenges.
0: Healing and empowerment. I love it so much. Um, I mean, I can only imagine that your work and the people who come to see you requires an incredible amount of courage and bravery and I I was curious to know about, like, the retention around this because I imagine the first place that you really would start is having an awareness around your challenges and going beyond the surface of what people actually come to you for. Do you experience that?
1: Yeah. Um, it's interesting because no two people ever show up in the same place. And so the, the point of entry, so to speak, is always dependent on where we are in our own journey. So where I start, where you start, where somebody else starts in their work may simply be with becoming aware of what challenges are in front of you, becoming aware of what you know, but also exploring what you don't know. And... Mm starting to take steps at expanding your own comfort zone to try to challenge yourself at doing whatever you need to do to challenge where your fear is showing up or where your anxiety or depression is showing up in that moment. And so my job or my role with people is really to figure out where can I push them just a little bit so that they can tap into their own power.
0: That's so great that you said that. I was actually curious about what you considered your role to be in this. If you, you know, help people uncover their challenges for themselves or if you help point them out, but it sounds like a delicate balance, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, because sometimes we need somebody to look at at what's going on in our life and say, "Oh, I know why you're you're anxious yeah. or I know why you're upset." Like, it's very obvious. I've already been through that. I've, I, I can totally just say, this is your challenge, and this is where you've got to grow.
0: Oh, that never works, does it?
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting, because it doesn't work. So there's, there's sort of two facets of of growth. There's a learning intellectually or, or cognitively what the challenge is, but then there's the development of your own emotional desire to do something about it. Mm. And so I can point out and tell you what I see But until you're emotionally ready to challenge that part in your life or that thing in your life It doesn't matter what you know
0: Almost like you can lead a horse to water kind of scenario.
1: Absolutely and you know kind of Goes in very well with what we're talking about with books I can read as many books as I want to but if I don't Mm -hmm. Do anything if I don't actively engage with the content of the book and apply it to my life it's not going to result in change Mm -hmm. and so the balance between helping somebody see where they can change but then supporting them in identifying where they want to change or where they're willing to change or put themselves out there is kind of the balance of therapy
0: beautifully put uh, let's talk a little bit about depression, if that's okay. It's funny, mm-hmm. I start with a smile, but I feel like a lot of people don't know this part about me, but I have a very, very intimate relationship with depression that spans you know, childhood, I think, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. I was even told once that I was born sad. Oof. And it's something that I've struggled with and have learned to appreciate about myself. And I was wondering... One, what your take on depression is and what are the benefits that you think come out of the awareness around depression?
1: Yeah, so um, kind of as a precursor, one of, one of my fundamental beliefs is that all behavior, all emotional experience has some kind of um, value to it. Okay, so if we're experiencing depression, if we're experiencing other symptoms, there is an inherent value in that nature doesn't make mistakes, nature doesn't give us mm-hmm. tools or experiences that aren't part of our survival system. It just, If it's not useful, it doesn't make it. Okay, so when it comes to depression, depression has a lot of advantages, um, mostly in slowing us down and making us go internal. And really looking at potential inconsistencies between the decisions we're making in our life and that value system that we're either unconsciously following, like values from family, friends, upbringing, religious background, societal expectations, and our own values that we have chosen, if we've been lucky enough to choose them at this point. So depression, I think, is, is a really useful tool in getting us to a place where we cannot focus on anything else but our relationship with ourself and, by sort of extension, our relationship with our own values and whether or not we're living in a way that's consistent with those.
0: Mm. So it sounds like depression is more of a disconnect.
1: I think so. Absolutely, and there are, of course, things that that can aggravate that disconnect or even prompt it. Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, this is kind of a, a very deep rabbit hole, and we can go into it if you want to. But <laughs> the whole world of how
0: much time do we have? <laughs> yeah,
1: the whole world of trauma and how traumatic experiences impact our ability to connect with ourselves and our own value system is a really valuable um, place to look because we all have experiences where we get traumatized and there's a lot of different opinions about what that means and how to interpret that. But at the heart of trauma, there is an inability to process through our emotions and to essentially complete the learning experience that's supposed to happen when we go through difficult experiences. And if you have any kind of a history of trauma, then the the impact of trauma can put you in a position where you cycle through depression every so often without really being aware of why. And there can be sort of a, a core emotional experience that's unprocessed that makes the depression useful for coming back until you can essentially resolve that traumatic experience
0: hmm so no I love that I think what what's going through my mind right now is just like how I feel like there are a lot of like um there are a lot of things that we can do to improve our mental and emotional health but then a lot of these things that happen over a period of time become almost like biological right like biologically ingrained and so I was wondering what your approach to you know, maybe like the first few steps somebody could take when it comes to addressing depression and elevating their mood.
1: Yeah, um, probably the the singular biggest thing that people can do is be in social contact with other humans. And
0: interesting, I wouldn't have thought that.
1: Yeah, and do whatever you can to build a core group of friends and supports that you can rely on, and you can. Be open and honest with. Um, When you look at happiness studies, there's this other great book called Blue Zones. Um, Mm. I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but when you look at happiness studies, one of the core factors in um, cultures and um, geographical locations where people are happiest has to do with their amount of social contact in a given day. And so, the, in this particular book, Blue Zones, one of the, the happiest cultural um, locations is Costa Rica. And on average, they socialize between five and six hours a day.
0: What a cool fact. You know, and now that you mentioned it, and I'm looking back, you know, after my divorce and the periods of depression that I went through, like, really, really dark spaces, I spent most of that in isolation until there was a point where it's like, you know what, every day I need to get out of the house. I need to, mm-hmm. like, have a coffee or, you know, I need to intentionally reach out to somebody from the past and intentionally make a new connection or um, be a part of a new group this week. It was always on my
2: mm-hmm.
0: my list of priorities to be intentional about making connections. And the second I did that, my life completely turned around and I had more energy and I was more optimistic and looking forward to life in general. Even, you know, even though problems still existed, they were manageable just by being out and around people.
1: Yep. hundred percent. And you know, when you think about sort of where we come from, we're social creatures.
0: We're not meant to be isolated.
1: Bingo. We're designed to be in small groups of people that know us, people that can support us, that we can support where there's a, a psychological and an emotional interplay. There's an exchange. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you look at some of the, the latest research that's emerging, um, there's biological impact when we're in long-term relationship with like significant others. Mm-hmm. They, they have done studies where they can measure physiological changes in, let's say, the, the male partner when the female partner is in distress. So like if, if you're in a heterosexual man-woman relationship and she is in distress consistently, they can measure her level of distress without even talking to her, but by measuring the man's blood pressure. Oh, gosh. There's, there's, a cor- yeah, there's a correlation between the two. And so they're starting to really get to a point in research where they can measure the biological impact of the people in your social network, in your social circle. And we've known for a long time that being social is part of being human, but um, the actual physiological impact um, is one of the probably the best. Um, things to use when you're feeling depressed and also one of the most difficult because when you feel depressed it's like you don't have energy you don't want to make contact so a um, lot of, of challenges that come along with it but finding a group of people even if you don't even talk to them that you can just go and be with who recognize you mm-hmm. and who say hey how are you is not to be undervalued it's as important as exercise or any of the other um, mitigating factors that help when people have those kinds of symptoms
0: wow that sounds so powerful I my head I was almost thinking like when when you're depressed and you don't have that energy maybe part of the reason why you can't be around those people is because you can't take on the energy of the people around you like you have nothing left to give But Mm -hmm. it sounds like we're constantly healing each other. So an important factor would definitely be self-awareness, working on yourself and your own personal development so that you can show up as your best self for others.
2: Yeah, 100%.
1: Hmm.
0: Very cool. Well, let's go into relationships because you also work in in the relationship space, right, and codependency. And I know this is a topic that we've chatted a little bit about. Mm -hmm. But what do you think we're missing when it comes to creating meaningful, lasting relationships, not just intimacy?: <laughs> So: um, Like I what? Think, <laughs> I want to know what made you laugh about that because I, I laugh
1: difficult. because it's such a big question. <laughs> um, but honestly, I think probably the biggest challenge that we run into. Is that we have a really hard time valuing differences,
2: mm.
1: and you know this is really prominent and prevalent on a national stage at this point. Um, but it's it, it, there's a lot of speculation about where it comes from. But when when you are in a relationship and you expect that the other person is going to essentially mirror you without being different. It is impossible to have quality relationship with somebody. It's really when we value the differences, when we value the things that create conflict, that we can actually have a relationship where not only do other people feel cared about and appreciated because we're valuing their differences, but we also set a stage for ourselves to be valued and appreciated when we're different. And that, I think, is probably the, the single most important thing when it comes to relationships, whether it's friendships or romantic. Because if you expect that you're going to get into a relationship and people are going to just be okay with everything that you are and also be okay with everything that you don't like about them, and change so that you don't have to be uncomfortable or so that you know you can be happy with as little discomfort as possible it's just not really
0: realistic right i've actually really struggled with this it, it's something that has frustrated me in my past relationships and not just in learning about you know our inherent bias right we like what we're familiar with and we like people mm-hmm. who are like us it's biologically ingrained or, you know, something that we grew up um, based on our, our values, right. The value system that we were raised in.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah, in past relationships, a big issue has always been compatibility because I think that, you know, I'm definitely not a person who can be put into a box. I'm interested in so many different things and I pursue those interests and passions. Whereas others, you know, that I tend to be involved with romantically or not really like their status quo. They like what they're familiar with and that's what it is. And it was those incompatibilities that were this driving rift. And it was so confusing to me because when I think of compatibility, I think of it as being something fluid and something that you can create, you know, it's something that's Mm -hmm. fun that you discover together. Um, and being able to be your own person, to be able to go out into the world and learn your own lessons and then bring that into a relationship with somebody who's also doing the same thing is like this perfect recipe and formula for innovation and creativity and evolution. Mm-hmm. So what's a suggestion for that you have for people who want to be able to create more Compatibilities or to learn to appreciate differences in others?
1: Um, I think, gosh, there's so many ways to approach this. I think the two that are, are resonating the most um, one is, is learning the difference between having an intellectual or a logical conversation mm-hmm. and having an emotional conversation. Ooh. And and you know this is kind of the way I've learned to talk about it. If you want to, if if you, you want to get deep into the science of this, there's a an author and a researcher by the name of John Gottman, um, who has a ton of of information. I think like forty published books on relationships and what works in specifically romantic relationships, but the one of the core tenets is that when we're having conversations with with people, we can really have a conversation where we're trying to figure out who is intellectually correct, like who has the fact, who has the right answer, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and we can argue back and forth about am I right or are you right, okay? Which is where a lot of people get into conflict, particularly in romantic relationships, and what gets missed is the emotional conversation that's happening underneath the details of the logical conversation. So if you, you know, are in relationship with someone who doesn't like that you go to networking events, let's say, because they're worried that you, you know, guys might hit on you or there might be like, there's just something about it that they don't like. Mm-hmm. They might come at you and say, well, you know, those networking events, they, they're not really valuable. It's kind of a waste of time. I don't really like why you're doing that. It, it doesn't really seem like it's helping, right? They might logically come at you with a bunch of reasons why they think you should or shouldn't do it, why they think it's good for your business or not. But emotionally, what they're really saying is, I'm feeling threatened. I'm afraid that you might leave me. I'm afraid that somebody might be better than me and they might attract you. But most of us don't have a developed emotional system to where we can, in relationship, just say that to somebody. And so what ends up happening is because I criticize your ideas and I try to be right through logic, it starts to look like you and I are incompatible. Mm because my ideas and your ideas don't match, and we fight about our ideas. But what's missing really is, on one hand, you might be saying, well, why don't you support me? I just want a partner who who loves and supports me and wants me to be able to go out and be my best self in, in the world. And he might be saying, well, I'm afraid that if you go out and be your best self, then what am I good for? Why would you come back to me? And so you really have fear, on both sides that's kind of driving the argument, but we almost never talk about the underlying emotional conversation that's happening when we argue or when we have conflict or when we're quote unquote incompatible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It always amazes me how we can end up limiting ourselves or keeping ourselves from what we really want, what we really desire, the connections that we truly want to have. Because of our own insecurities, so how do we resolve those conflicts within ourselves and and with others?
1: So uh,
0: I know big questions. Big Jordan. question, right? <laughs> big but <questions> you. <laughs> when when
1: when I know what my values are, and when I have the ability to be emotionally vulnerable and say, "Hey." Like, I really want to support you in going to these events, but I'm also, like, feeling afraid. And here's what I'm afraid about, and here's kind of what I need from you. We have the ability to actually take care of ourselves. Because if I know what's important to me, and if I can tell you what's going on emotionally for me, and, you know, assuming that I'm in a relationship with somebody who's supportive emotionally, okay, but if we can have those conversations, we can actually build trust through the conflict that occurs. And that building of trust is what allows us to stabilize um, the parts of ourselves that inherently are insecure. Mm-hmm. You know, And we can go into attachment theory and talk about where those insecurities come from.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, but, thanks mom, thanks dad.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but the core of it, regardless of what your attachment style is, the core of it is, can I learn to have conversations about what's going on for me emotionally? Can I value myself enough that I choose partners and I choose relationships where people care about my feelings and are willing to have conversations with me about what I'm feeling and vice versa? So that, as I inevitably run across these insecurities, run across these challenges and these apparent um, incompatibilities, we can actually work through it, get to know each other on a deeper level, and build a trusting relationship because if we can do that, going back to the conversation about sort of social connection and how it it helps create a buffer against depression and anxiety and those other Symptoms that show up in our society right now. If we can have those kinds of conversations, we can have pretty rich and fulfilling lives, and we can be happy most of the time, even when we're having conflict or when we're upset or sad. We can be happy because those relationships are part of our support system and part of what helps us take care of ourselves.
0: Beautifully put. Yeah, I I like to think of our fears and insecurities as kind of like a compass of things you know we need to shine a light on the shadow aspects of ourselves but usually once we shine a light on them we tend to make that choice to run from them you know (laughs) I I have the other podcast the hero and the coward and it comes down to the choices that we make when confronted with conflict so would you be able to give some advice or maybe share how you almost encourage your courage to face and address those, those shadow aspects and create opportunities from conflict.
1: Yeah. So my go-to at this point is, um, really building my relationship with myself. And that sounds a little bit weird, especially if you're new to the personal development, (laughs) but when when I think, like, in my own life, when I look at where my insecurities show up, when I look at where I have challenges in relationship, whether it's socially or romantic or otherwise, what it really comes down to is my challenges happen when my fear or the wounded parts of me take over and are just kind of operating in the background without my awareness. So this might look like, Um, I am, we'll just continue with the networking example. Let's say I go to a networking event. I don't know anybody. I've never been to this event and I'm a little bit nervous or I'm anxious about who's going to be there and whether or not I'm going to be able to start up conversations. If my fear takes over, I might be one of those who sits on the wall, doesn't engage with people, waits for people to come up to me. And really has a horrible time because I'm sitting there in my mind frantically thinking about what should I do and whether or not people are judging me. Very classic anxiety scenario. But if I can walk into that event and I can be kind to myself and I can literally out loud or in my head say, everybody's nervous, everybody is wondering, you know, whether or not they're going to make connections with people. If you're not sure what to do, just pretend like you're a host. (laughs) Tell people that you're anxious. Just say, Hey, you know, I'm Jordan. It's nice to meet you. These things always make me a little bit anxious and just verbalize what's going on and build a connection through being vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. so if I can be my own coach and I can say, it's totally okay. It's fine. If you feel anxious, it's fine. If you're worried about people judging you, but don't let that be the thing that defines your night. Take a risk introduce yourself to somebody, if I can coach myself through it, but by being kind and compassionate to myself, then I can have as good of an experience as anybody else in the room.
0: I am beaming from ear to ear right now, <laughs> listening to you say that. I think it's beautiful. And it also, again, reminds us that we're not as disconnected as, as we think. Um, we're also you know, usually going through the same experiences, but being able to like verbalize that and make that connection realized is very powerful.
1: Yeah, 100%. And it starts by being kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. The things that people say to themselves when they're in a difficult situation, the way that they criticize themselves or judge themselves internally Mm -hmm. is often way worse than whatever they're coming up against.
0: Beautiful. So kinder self-talk is definitely one way. And something else I was thinking on meditating on earlier today, um, and wanting to ask you is how we might take things too seriously. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you had any helpful tools to not take things so seriously.
1: Yeah. I think the, the thing that comes to my head is this could be potentially triggering for some people, but Really, when when we take things too seriously, I, I think it often has to do with the fact that we're not really looking at potential consequences,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? If I am going to blow something out of proportion, usually what that means is I'm going to be looking at worst case scenario and ignoring all of the other potential outcomes, mm. okay? So... Again, networking example, if I'm thinking that I'm going to walk in there and nobody's going to talk to me and everybody's going to point at me and, and laugh at me and make fun of me, that's a pretty extreme scenario, right?
0: I showed up and forgot my pants. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. But if I look at, at all of the potential outcomes and I really realize that probably 98% of the things that I worry about never happen. hmm Then I can also start looking at, well, what could potentially go right? Like I could walk in there and somebody could greet me and I could say, hey, I'm happy to be here. I haven't been to this before. I don't know anybody. Who do I need to meet? That's one potential outcome. What are other potential outcomes? So we often overly focus on the one worst case scenario at the exclusion of everything else that's far more likely to occur.
0: Yeah, totally. I love it. I love um, asking myself in moments like that, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Like, what if it doesn't work out? But also, what if it does? Yeah,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: what would that be? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And oftentimes, if I can identify three, four, five things that could go right, I can obsess about those as much as I can obsess about the one thing I think is going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that when you do that, you have a much different experience. So yeah, obsessing about the good things, I would say, is is probably my go to. I love
0: that obsessing about the good things. Very cool. Um, let's go back to value systems because mm-hmm. you mentioned it as being really important. Um, knowing who you are, having your self awareness, helps you approach situations with more confidence. So, what has been your process for discovering your values, and how have you Protected that from other people's influence or expectations
1: Okay, so Knowing your values is kind of it's a challenging process Okay, because again this idea that Intellectually we can have ideas knowledge things that we believe are true Mm -hmm. But never test them experientially Um, To really discover your values you have to test them experientially Meaning the only way that I am going to know if I value, let's say, being physically fit. The only way I'm going to know that is if I look at what my life is like when I'm doing little to no exercise. I keep track of how I feel. I keep track of how I sleep and the other things that are important to me. And then comparing it with how I feel when I, let's say, do moderate amount of exercise three or four times a week. Over time, my experiences give me the information. They give me the feedback, the data that I need to say, well, which one do I prefer? Which one's important to me? Do I really care about being in shape or do I not care about it? Does it meet my values of wanting to be healthy and feel good or does it not? And allowing experience to really be the metric of whether or not you value something. So this this also works with, like, most people agree that if I am walking down the street and I punch an eight-year-old girl in the face, that's, (laughs) that's like, violating my values, right? Mm. And it's an extreme example, but extreme examples are really good because that's where we can learn, oh, yeah, I do value this. Like, I number one, would never think about doing that. And number two, if something ever happened where I accidentally did that, I would feel horrible. Right, And that I feel horrible experience is part of how I know I value not punching people. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So we have to go out and test our values and our beliefs by actually getting into experiences that allow us to feel through whether or not this is important to me.
0: It's so great that you make feeling and paying attention to the physical sensations and responses in your body important because i feel like a lot of psychology a lot of that at least when i was studying it was really dismissed you know they were trying to sure real science and they're like emotions don't matter and how you feel doesn't matter because this is all biology but i think it's great that that you're an advocate for paying attention to yourself
1: Yeah. I mean, it's critical. And, you know, you're right that a lot of the pop culture science is about what you can do with your mind. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, in the last 20 years, the incidence of antidepressants and the incidence of depression anxiety is up like four or 500%. So Mm -hmm. what we're doing isn't working. And when you look at the development of the human species, And I don't have hard facts on this, but just kind of when I think about it logically, Mm -hmm. we had feelings, aka instincts, long before we ever developed language. And so when when you start to see that anger is a primitive instinct, sadness is an instinct, fear is an instinct that supports you surviving, it almost becomes more valuable to pay attention to what those feelings are signaling in you than it does to try to override them with your mind,
2: Yeah.
1: right? Because if I'm angry at something, I'm experiencing someone crossing one of my boundaries. I'm feeling threatened. And if I'm feeling threatened, I'm afraid. So if I can understand what those emotions are telling me about my situation, I can actually take steps to resolve the potential threat, whether it's real or imagined rather than try to use my mind to tell me that I shouldn't feel that way or that I'm not actually in danger, I can actually take steps to protect myself. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so to ignore the emotions is to ignore however many billions of years of evolution you subscribe to or even thousands of years of evolution depending on your background. And the fact that we all feel for a reason, the same way that your heart beats for a reason, the same way that you breathe for a reason.
2: Yeah.
1: And if we don't pay attention to what those signals are really telling us, then we miss out on one of the, the most valuable forms of feedback that we already have in our own body.
0: Mm, totally. And to reiterate what you said, nature doesn't make mistakes.
1: No, it doesn't.
0: That's <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so... Uh, Oh my gosh, how do we come up on time already? This has gone by so quickly. Um, Let's see. One more thing that I'm curious about, because I'm all about trying new things and trying to be creative and opening myself up to new experiences. And we're all about applied knowledge here and learning and growing together. So what has been one of the most fun homework assignments you've given yourself to develop as a person?
1: Um, Probably the best one that I've done, especially in recent time, is I joined a men's group
2: Mm. probably
1: close to a year and a half ago at this point. And, you know, I'm like 10 years into being a therapist and I think I've got all this stuff down in my life. And I get into this group of men, and I'm afraid, and I don't want to tell people what's really going on in my life, and I don't like to build trust with these guys, and it takes me way longer than I would have expected to really build solid relationships with these guys that are in this group. And so this is one of the things that's really cemented this idea that you can know what you know, but if you don't practice what you preach, basically, you don't get out there and actively engage with other people who are like you in some ways, but different than you in other ways, and learn how to navigate sort of the emotional waters of relationship, you are not going to to actually benefit from what you know. And so, for me, the challenge of being in relationship consistently with other people who are committed to being authentic, committing, committed to being accountable, committed to working on themselves, is far more valuable than any other tool that, that I could offer, because that's where real relationship muscle gets
0: built. That's incredible. I've actually, so personally, I've been thinking about, you know, my community, my core group and what I want that to look like, because I feel like it changed, it definitely changed over the years and joining something similar to like a women's group would be highly beneficial. Mm -hmm. But I can imagine, you know, feeling the exact same things that you felt, the fear and vulnerability. Sure. you know, showing up authentically in front of people who I don't know and uh, you know, starting from scratch and building relationship almost out of nothing, searching for the compatibility. That's definitely terrifying for me. I was almost hoping you would say like, Oh, I went to a trampoline gym and <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, so simple, right?
1: <laughs> so
2: simple.
1: So simple. And and just to be totally transparent, it's something that in my own therapeutic work, like mm-hmm. uh, probably 10 years ago, my therapist was like, I, th- I think you'd really benefit from being in like a group setting.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm
1: fine. I don't need that. I'm good. <laughs> uh-huh. I got friends.
0: <laughs> totally. Yeah. But also I think it's a, it's a good place to make a point here that it doesn't have to look like that either. You know, it doesn't have totally. to be like serious or like sitting around a campfire sharing feelings. It could be, you know, some of the best connections I've made, are you know through playing frisbee or going to a rock climbing gym um, you know finding these events with people who have similar interests because at least then you have a starting point and you're doing an activity that you both love and then relationships can naturally develop from there and then with a little bit more effort they turn into potentially your most valuable relationships
1: 100 percent, yep and then the goal in those situations is to be authentic and mm-hmm. as you feel trusting of people to be more vulnerable and let them in, in a way that still feels safe because it's always okay to protect yourself in a relationship yeah. too.
0: All right. One last question. You. Mm-hmm. I like what you, you said there. Who makes the first move in being vulnerable?
1: Um, <laughs> honestly, it's always me. Yeah. Because Is
0: that so, intentional, something that you've learned.
1: Yeah, if I'm waiting for other people to be the one, it
0: mm-hmm. just doesn't happen. Yeah.
1: And, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not capable. It's just, mm-hmm. if I'm aware that vulnerability is going to help me build a relationship, it's almost like fast tracking the the end result of whether or not this relationship is is possibly going to allow for vulnerability. Now, that doesn't mean that, I say, hi, my name's Jordan, and then launch into my life story. <laughs> right? But going back to like the networking event, hi, my name's Jordan, I always get kind of nervous at these things, would be mm-hmm. vulnerability. Right? I'm revealing something that maybe isn't PC or isn't expected, but it's it's measured in quality. Telling somebody that I don't know, that I feel a little bit nervous at a networking event is probably like a one or a two in terms of intensity out of maybe 10 It's very different than saying, you know, my mom died <laughs> this year and I'm sad yeah. about it. So I come to these events to deal with it. Yeah. Right. That would be probably an overshare in that context, but there's lots of little ways that we can reveal small things about ourselves, which is an act of, of vulnerability. And, watch whether or not the other person is willing to reciprocate,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you're giving them the opportunity to choose.
1: Absolutely. And people who don't reciprocate, Mm -hmm. you might hang around for a little bit and try again later, like the second or the third time that you've met them. But if by the third or, yeah, probably by the third time, if they aren't providing any measure of vulnerability, if they're Mm -hmm. not revealing anything about themselves – it's probably not the kind of relationship that's going to develop into something deep and strong,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And again, it doesn't have to be that they're telling life story, but if they're not giving any kind of emotional connection or reciprocation it it can just as well be permission to move on to a relationship where that is available.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, where in that moment, it's probably not right for you or them. Right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything coming up or anything, any special announcements?
1: Nope. Um, I mean, people can can Maybe. find me online if they want to, anxietytherapysd.com. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, just kind of hanging out, doing private practice at this point. And uh, I love these kinds of conversations. So I appreciate mm-hmm. you asking and I'm always it. up for it.
0: Okay. Yeah, I would love to do a follow-up with you because there's so much more that I want to talk to you about for sure. Um, I love how articulate you are, as I fumble on that word, (laughs) (laughs) but how you communicate, and you communicate honestly and compassionately and insightfully, and um, I really, really respect that, and I I love so much that we're connected and to get to know you and to call you my friend, so I appreciate you um, being willing to be a part of this.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. I really appreciate being able to get real with you.
0: Oh, man, I am so in love with this combo. What do you guys think? On a personal level, I found myself profoundly impacted by Jordan's ideas around vulnerability and acceptance. I think the expression of both these ideals are true gifts of grace. On the one hand, there is so much love and kindness that comes through when we are able to accept ourselves for who we are in this moment. And with that acceptance, along with empathy and awareness, of course, you're better able to extend that acceptance to others creating a safe space for your vulnerabilities and theirs, and ultimately opening up opportunities for connection in richer, more meaningful ways. In a lot of ways, I feel like this is what's missing from our everyday lives. Sure, we have a group of friends we hang out with or acquaintances we see in similar circles, but are we really connecting? Are we giving to others what we ourselves are seeking? Or are we simply engaging in surface-level interactions in ways that are simply familiar? With that, I'd like to extend a challenge to you that's been really beneficial in my life. The exercise was mentioned earlier in the podcast and served as a way to cultivate and nurture relationships in my life and help me to assess and refine what I truly valued in myself and others. Step one would be to reach out to someone you admire and would like to get to know better. For me, these people were neighbors, new acquaintances, ex-bosses, and old friends. And it can be done in the way like a simple, hey, how are you, a handwritten note or postcard, or even just meeting up for coffee. The second step would be to intentionally make a new connection each week. It's a challenge of showing up authentically, learning to appreciate another person for who they are, and exercising vulnerability and creating an opportunity for another to choose you as you are. I really like this last exercise because even though it sounds intimidating to meet new people, you really have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And it's a great practice of self-awareness to see if you can truly show up as yourself in any environment or interaction. Can you imagine the benefits? The confidence that can be learned? The anxiety that can be conquered? More so, what about the mental and emotional space that you'd be freeing up in your life when you can honestly say to the world, Yes, this is me. There's a power in knowing who you are both in relationship to yourself and of course others. I'd love to know how this exercise goes for you. As always, feel free to reach out to me anytime on the Prismatic Academy Facebook page or on theprismaticlife.com. You can also reach my wonderful guest and friend Jordan Sabrant on his website and his information and bio will also be posted in the show notes on theprismaticlife.com as well as in the description below. If you enjoy this podcast, I personally would love it if you would like, share, and subscribe. And last but not least, thank you. Thank you, Jordan, for sharing your wisdom and learning with us. I can't wait to do a follow-up with you. So until next time, cheers, everyone.